Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Thinking Basketball Podcast, welcome back. My name is Ben. It's been a long summer. It's been a long time since the last episode of the Thinking Basketball Podcast. Over the course of this summer, though, I have done other podcasts, including the Athletics All Axes new show with Seth Part now talking about analytics and stats and breaking the game down from that perspective. That was fun. And another one I did recently was Real GM Radio with Danny LaRue, and Danny happens to be the guest for today. I invited Danny to come on really to talk about the different sides of the aging curve. So the impetus for this conversation was who is going to change in a material way. I mostly focused on players under 25. Danny included some older guys, sort of that classic like breakout player model, who's going to burst out onto the scene. And the goal behind the conversation and what we kind of worked up to in preparing to record was thinking about why. So is it a team situation? Uh, What other areas can a player improve on the court? Can he get better at rim finishing? How does physical maturity impact these things? How does uh, advancing or developing shot impact these things? How does teammate impact that? So we'll talk a lot about that today. We do make all kinds of, you know, we both have our players in mind, so that'll make good fodder in the fall to go back and certainly at least make fun of the guys who I earmarked for this who didn't pan out. But hopefully we did okay in kind of sizing up the most likely candidates, if you will. So it's most likely candidates for players to break out and then coming back later on it'll be a a different episode in the future we will get to we we just ended up recording so long we couldn't get there but in the future we will get to players on the other side of the aging curve who we think are candidates to drop off in a meaningful way this year that impacts the team so without further ado my conversation with Danny LaRue thanks for having me It, it it was fun to kind of think about this in a different way because while Nate and I obviously talk about who we think is going to be better or be worse it's you know it is different to do a whole podcast related to it but I I, I was excited about the process yeah and and a little background for me um, I was looking at sort of the major differences in teams from year to year that stand out like why does a team end up with 44 wins when we think they're at 27 and I think the lowest hanging fruit is just guys get better when you don't think they're going to get better or teams that fall off their guys age out uh, and that's sort of you know playing with the aging curve and doing stats research on development and things like that that led to the topic so here we are I couldn't think of anyone better than you to come on and uh, sort of go a little deeper on this well that's very nice of you to say and thinking about it through the concept of this podcast it allowed me to articulate something that I've been running in my head for probably about 10 years Ooh. and it was how how to separate out the different kinds of improvement and decline. And what I ended up with was three different, I guess you call it categories that actually apply both directions. You just look at it, it's just that it, it, it pulls one direction or pulls the other. So the first is the, I call it the passage of time. And it's a pretty basic one. You know, if 
if players are on the positive side of the aging curve, if the declines that they have athletically, which are generally very small when a guy's young, are surpassed by the skill development, the mental part of the game, well, then the passage of time is going to be important for them. And that group can sometimes be hard to predict. Those are the ones that sometimes come out of nowhere, though they're also the ones that people enjoy predicting the most. Second one are... So, so for that first one. Sure. So for the first one, would you elaborate on that just a little bit more? So you're saying it, there's some physical deterioration, but skills that are like that you maybe gain with experience offset them? Right. So the idea, Kevin Pelton's the first person I heard articulate this, is that when you think about, like, well, why isn't a player's prime in their early 20s? The the answer, because a player's physical ability, and this is something that he put out that always made sense to me, like if you measure it by, you know, rebound percentage or just running and jumping type of physical stuff, because obviously there are other things like footwork that can change. Generally speaking, the running, jumping, shuttle drill type of stuff, unless a player is just out of shape, those things generally start getting worse from a guy's, you know, from, from when a guy's younger. But there is so much more to be gained in terms of learning the sport, you know, communication or how to navigate a pick and roll offensively, defensively. There's just so much that happens. And that's really, to me, what the growth a lot of times from the rookie year to a sophomore year is, is learning the NBA, learning all I, I mean, also like conditioning and the mental part, all, all these, all these different elements that are the passage of time. And then, so what a prime is, is that's when the, the mental part of the game is, it's not as good as it's going to be because players keep getting smarter, they keep getting better, but it's where those gains start dissipating and guys start falling off at, to a higher degree physically. And so then that's what leads from pre-prime to prime to post-prime is just the gains are smaller and the losses are bigger. So, a, and so players can forestall that. There are a bunch of different things that they can try. But so the idea behind that is for certain players... I would say De'Aaron Fox was a really good example of this last year. Just being a year older and spending a year in the league was going to make him a better player. Right. I I love that framework. That makes a lot of sense to me. I've often talked a lot about uh, late offensive primes, meaning guys who lose the athletic advantages that they had when they were younger, but the skills and experience they pick up are so great that they override them on offense. And so your overall prime may be your 25 season, your 27-year-old season, whatever. But when you're Dirk Nowitzki and you figured out, I've spent the last four years working on my base strength and I have my one-legged fadeaway. And if you get me the ball between eight and 19 feet, I'm literally a maestro and a savant and I know this offense and everything. Then you can put together a 2011 in your, I think that was his age 32 season, which is, you know, arguably your best offensive work ever, even though all of those physical advantages you had when you were younger, when Dirk came in the league, he was, you know, dunking on people at seven feet from the perimeter. Those go away, you still have that edge. So I love I love that framework. That's a good place for us to start in terms of thinking about the aging curve from the beginning as you go into your prime, post prime, and then when you sort of age out at the end. And I like to think about point guards kind of first with this because we see how late they develop. I think Mike Conley is a great example here. Conley, a very smart player, you know, even going into the AAU and Ohio State days, but there's just a lot to take in, a lot of physical development, how to how to deal with everything that comes with running an NBA offense. And so 
those players need a little bit. So I don't know. Do you want me to lay out the three categories? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And please. then go through it? Please, okay. Yeah. So, and then you can think about the other way. So passage of time when a player is a little bit older, then there isn't as much skill to gain. And there's, there's another conversation I'd like to have here. We can do that with declines later on. So that's the first category. The second category is... It's, it, it, I think it classifies within breakouts, but it's really more of an opportunity or situation change. So that could be a player who was buried on the bench or was in a, a bad system, and that helps unlock something. So, I mean, you could use a bunch of the different bucks last year as an example here because they went the system they went through, Giannis. And all, I mean, Giannis did a bunch of different things, but one of them was the opportunity situation change of playing with a four-spacing five. And then that can obviously go the other way too. Maybe you're a dependent player and your linchpin left to go somewhere else and you didn't replace him. So then all of a sudden the quality of shots that you're getting drops off precipitously, even though you're not necessarily worst player, but that is a sort of a decline in and of itself. So situation, opportunity, and I like to not think about this in terms of minutes played because that's its own thing. But I'm sure other people will, and that's often a factor in, let's say, most improved player voting, where it's not necessarily that the guy is significantly better, it's just that they're getting more time. Right, the the counting stats and the impact that those counting stats have on awards voting, essentially. Exactly, and that's why I think it's a lot more fruitful to talk about breakouts and everything of that nature in terms of deserving not in terms of awards because then if you get into the foibles of voters and everything else like that it's just less fun because then you're predicting how that how that's going to go but i do think that opportunity is is really important and there are times where playing time is a factor in it i mean there are a few players i'll bring up in that category that i do think the biggest thing that could lead to them breaking out is just having an opportunity but then there are other ones where they were just in a really bad situation. Maybe the team didn't have floor spacing or they had overlapping talent, and then they just didn't get the opportunity to show what they can do. And that could be a coach. There are lots of different ways that can happen. And, I mean, a good example of this a couple years ago, I mean, he checked basically all three of these boxes, but was Victor Oladipo's breakout year, where one of the huge elements was that he was way better. Like, he did more with the bonus hands, but also Nate McMillan really did trust him to do more, and his role was meaningfully different, at least than Oklahoma City, but I would argue that it was than Orlando at least a little bit as well. So what's the the third box here? Because this is track... I have been doing this exercise in preparing for this episode, and this is tracking really well with sort of the, the angles I'm trying to look at in saying... Because part of the spirit here is, you know can we predict and how can we predict what are the factors um, and it's very interesting to hear you go through these because I'm like yeah wait actually I, I was looking for that angle or tried to put that guy in that bucket so we've got uh, the aging the aging changes that you talked through first uh, a minute ago now opportunity and situation change what is number three here number three is a little bit stickier but the way I describe it is it's better or in the other case worse than people think and that's Regression to the mean is a part of that, but it's also just that maybe they, it's not necessarily a situation change. It's just that they have more, that they have more that they even hadn't had the opportunity or whatever. And it's, that that's why it's kind of a catch-all. So maybe it's a player who isn't in a wholly new situation. I, I don't want to spoil who some of these players are. I actually have a lot in this category. And it's also because this is the part that I got into what I just criticized about. It is sometimes about perception. And so if a player didn't really get much traction and they're a similar version of what they already were, but they're getting a greater appreciation, 
I think of that as a form of a breakout because the way that I've often described it is somebody that we're talking about significantly differently a year from now or whatever period of time from now than we do at the moment. And those are actually really common iteration of this for both breakouts and regressions. For example, like Josh Jackson was in this camp a couple of years ago where he was just worse than people thought. So yeah, he was a disappointment, but he wasn't necessarily a disappointment with respect to what he actually was. It was just in relation to expectation. Yeah, that's fuzzy. You, you mean G League star Josh Jackson? Uh, yeah, training camp non-invitee Josh Jackson. So yeah, I so that third category is interesting to bring up because I think it's like it's almost a constant in that every time you're looking at a player and trying to evaluate, you know, will he break out? Will he improve? Will it be significant? Will it have impact? Because again, that's sort of the the genesis of this exercise is to say, well, if a team's going to improve or outperform expectations, some individual players are usually driving that. So if it's relevant then you always are stopping and going like, well, wait, is he better than people think already? And other stuff will happen around the team. And to your point, maybe bucket one or bucket two occurs where the coach gives him a better opportunity. Spacing opens up some of these things. Um, this was this was something in my head when I stopped on D'Angelo Russell. Wasn't on my final list, but he's in a new situation. He's going to be with new players. He's going to have a new coach. Uh, he's a year old. There's, there's, there's all sorts of factors working there that had me thinking like, well, again, you could almost argue, even though he definitely got better last year, that some of his attention and breakout last year was because of things like counting stats and raw numbers. And maybe he's still not like, I don't think he's still as good as the mainstream kind of thinks that he is. So how do you adjust those levers as you go about uh, going through an exercise like this? So, okay, cool. Very, very interesting. So before we get into the list, uh, just a quick note on some data for me uh, looking at filters uh, trying to look at players in the last like 15 years starting in 2005 one of the things I did was I said how many guys make an improvement from one season to the next who are under the age of 25 and I looked at my box plus minus model and I wanted to see who improved on offense by at least one point and who had a positive improvement in augmented plus minus. Augmented plus minus is just, uh, it's it's like a, similar to a PIPM type model. It's box score plus uh, on off or plus minus data, trying to, trying to kind of incorporate plus minus data or mimic an adjusted plus minus model. So you have these orthogonal, pat. you have a box score growth and you have kind of like uh, plus minus impact growth, if you will. Well, it turns out there are about 100 such players who have done that which comes out to about seven per season. So, you know, not like enormous leaps, not like Darren Fox going from bottom of the league to top of the league last season. That, that was an unprecedented kind of outburst. But we are expecting the guys we're talking about here today to, to the level that we're kind of talking about. We should expect last year we had six guys who met that criteria the year before eight. Um, there should be about six, seven, eight, nine guys, maybe five on a low season. So just keep that in mind before we dive in. Um, and without further ado, Danny, do you want to kick us off with who you have at, I don't know if you want to do number 10 or tiers or, but you, you take it away. Well, I'll t- I'll talk instead. I, I don't, I didn't really necessarily rank it as rigidly, but I'll talk about a couple of guys that I think are really interesting in that first category and because I think there's there there's a question about how it's going to work and I think since we're starting more towards the bottom it's, it's a good place to be and I said the passage of time group and passage of time 
I mentioned point guards, and so I want to run some of these by you. I was just trying to process them, and that's why I think talking about them in this 10 range is a good one. The first guy is Dennis Smith, and Dennis Smith is challenging because I can see the general contours of how this would work. You know, enigmatic player, needs some time to figure things out, has had a lot of uncertainty in terms of team and role. He got traded last year, but... There are also plenty of reasons to believe that it's not going to happen for him, one being this bizarre Knicks team, but also because the concerns that have been expressed about Dennis Smith and his approach to the game, his maturity, those are the exact same factors that could lead to the mental development that a point guard needs, either not coming or coming later than expected. Yeah, there's a bit of a catch-22 with some players, I feel like, where you look at them and you say... The decision-making isn't there. Um, They don't have the worst feel for the game ever, but they're in environments or playing in a way that is hampering their numbers. Like, I pulled up Dennis Smith as you were talking about him, and his true shooting percentage last year was eight percentage points below league average. that's, That's a train wreck for a player who has the basketball as much as he does and, you know, tries to score and shoot as much as he does. So you you kind of end up with this double-edged sword where you're like, huh, that's a lot of room for improvement. Like he could easily improve there as a point guard if he kind of picks up some of those skills and, and the game slows down and all the stuff that you alluded to earlier with point guards. But on the other hand, at least for me, it's hard to look at guys like that with that track record, even going back to NC State. And I love him as an athlete and sort of the potential of what he is. But I have a hard time um, sort of squaring that circle, if you will, especially on the Knicks. Yeah, and he, he's a really a really good one for kind of talking about the the nebulousness of this. I mean, some people see passage of time guys as being fait accompli, you know, that it's, oh, that's just what happens. But it isn't always what happens. You know, we, we, don't, we don't always get to get to see that situation. Another guy in the same camp is Malik Monk. I expect Malik Monk to be better than he was last year. There was, of course, muscle watches looking for everybody, but he's he's had some of that. And because Malik Monk should have an opportunity with Kemba being gone and that team just being so weird. Did, so, he, did he have some Instagram pictures that I missed? I thought I saw somebody say that he gained 20 pounds of muscle in the offseason. Might have even been 30. Oh, I, I gained. How many did you gain this offseason? I gained 25. Of muscle? Uh, all muscle. And I I'm, lost my body fat's now 1.4%. You have a great agent. You should get that out on Twitter. <laughs> Instagram, not Twitter. Ah, uh, yeah, you're right. That's that's more for the gram. Anyway, and keep then going. The last kind of nebulous guy that I want to talk about with you, he's because I I started out as a huge partisan and then have turned, as I often do. The players that I turn on, I turn hard on, and that is Dante Exum. Dante Exum, I still think that there, you know, that that there's a really good player in there. And it's also possible that he could be in the, you know, a couple of the other camps better than people think, but he's just been so hurt. And But I don't want to put him in breakout candidates because I'm not super confident in it, but I absolutely see the potential. And so if you were to say seven, seven to ten players have significantly better seasons, like, you know, that kind of thing, it wouldn't totally shock me if he was in that camp. I love this so far, and this is exactly kind of what I was hoping would happen. I had none of these players on my radar at all. And Exum is a guy who, much like you, I loved the idea of him before he was drafted into the league. Obviously, you didn't get to see much of him, um, given his his you know background in Australia. And I think at this point, the I don't know if I've done a full turn against him, but 
I think he needs to embrace being a defensive stopper and a versatile perimeter defender. I've now seen people saying Utah, you know, they can employ him now at, at forward in certain lineups. I think he needs to embrace that and couple that with more of a role player. Like when he came in, it was this passing pick and roll. Can he be a lead kind of guy? And I think players in this position, especially when they're young, if they can make the transition and embrace their roles, you know, he's a guy who's going to be in a situation in his career where he can attack closeouts. Uh, can he get his shot to improve? And can he be great on defense? Then I think, in a way, he's a guy who could steadily improve or even, quote-unquote, break out. But, yeah, for me, um, I, I, a lot of those things are hard to happen together. So what wasn't on my radar. Something else to mention with XM. This is actually got into something you and I talked about briefly on Real Jam Radio a couple weeks ago. I've heard the XM guarding forwards thing as well. And an underappreciated part of that thought process and that a lot of people miss is it's not just about height and wingspan. It's about physical strength. And Dante XM, I, I, I openly concerned that he's strong enough to do that. And I like to think about players. This is more offensive than defensive. Ingram's a good example of this. I've had numerous guys over the years where it's what is the advantage that they have and that they're better at utilizing. And so offensively, that's oftentimes it's speed versus size or power. So if you're, let's say, a 4-5 or five guy, are you better at outmaneuvering a slow center or are you better at posting up a small 4? And that's a good general idea of where your niche should be in an ideal world, though, as we know, Sample sizes and all that kind of stuff can, or like just supply actually can dictate a lot of that. John Collins is a good example here. And with Exum, I think that's one of the problems is I think that you neutralize a lot of his quickness advantages if you put him on somebody who's far larger, who's stronger than he is, especially if they're also similar sized. So I think of him more as like a 2-1 defender, but could be a very, very good one. And Utah, again, on the situation part of it, depending on how Quinn Snyder structures the rotation, if he separates out Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell, I think Exum could work well as a complementary piece for either one of those guys. Yeah, I mean, I, I buy into that. But again, you know, how much how much does that move the needle, if you will? Um, I, I, I think I think we're we're kind of aligned on Exum here unless you unless you really think he's got a, a good shot to move forward no he's he's just somebody that i wanted to mention yeah uh, do you want do you want to throw somebody out um so let me let me circle back because i already mentioned him earlier to d'angelo russell just because mm-hmm. i think he fits in that box of like i i anticipate him uh moving into this situation and and basically having better opportunities better numbers to a certain degree you never know with volume per se but I think he's going to do well there. I think he's got a smart coaching staff. I think he's going to benefit from playing next to Steph Curry and still having a big role. Just just for some perspective, when a guy like Harrison Barnes, obviously a smaller role, but when he left in 2016 and went to Dallas, his true shooting percentage dropped by like 3 or 4%, I think, which is pretty typical for these kinds of players. And when you look at someone like Russell, Russell, to me, sort of the biggest offensive knock on him right now is he struggles to generate really easy scores for himself. He doesn't get to the rim a lot, doesn't have a crazy high foul draw rate, and yet he's a very skilled shooter, very skilled passer. And I just, I see him in this situation getting, he's going to be a year older. He's going to have a new group of people to work with. He's going to have sort of a different kind of spotlight on him. And I think he's going to have more open shots, more opportunities to get easy stuff. And again, that could result 
in some ostensible growth, but how much like that that didn't necessarily sort of make my cut for guys that I think are most likely to show this meaningful improvement, if you will. I thought about it with Russell and then another player who didn't make this kind of the higher groups for me, partially because of his prior success, is I think that Russell Westbrook will have the most efficient season of his career this year, but he's not going to win another MVP. He's not going to be, you know, so I, I, I think that he and Russell are in an interesting place where they could both have better seasons than some of their other stuff. And I'm not saying he's going to be as good as Russ is going to be as good as MVP season or anything like that because the, and he was a deserving MVP that year. I love Rockets fans having to reconcile with this, but I do think that there is more untapped potential, especially if he can embrace some of these, some of the elements that have you know, that are just understand and work within some of the weaknesses that he's had in his overall offensive game over the years. And I think there's a parallel here to, I said this two years ago about Andrew Wiggins, that when, when they got Jimmy Butler, that if it's going to work, it's going to work now. And while Russ has had infinitely more success than Andrew Wiggins to this point, it's that same idea where if Mike D'Antoni and playing alongside James Harden and being on a potential title contender can't get Russ to iron out the weaknesses in his game, then nothing will. Then Russ is going to be Russ. It's so interesting you mention Russ because he's on the other side of the aging curve for me and having those same discussions about, well, he's going to be in a system and a situation next to Harden and with D'Antoni and Houston, where to your point, there could be a lot more efficiency. There could be a lot more uh, efficacy and sort of like all of those pieces could fit together to help him or help him produce better numbers in a way that we haven't seen in a while. Um, but maybe maybe we'll come back to Russ. The other... Well, well here, here, I want to mention one more thing. With yeah, you. go ahead. Russell Westbrook's career high in true shooting percentage is 55.4%. He did that two years in a row, actually. He did that in 15-16 and then in 16-17. The year that Durant's last year there and his MVP season. If you had to guess right now, would you guess that he's going to bust through that 55-4? Uh, here, here's the Remember, issue. Remember, he was at 50% flat last right, year. Right, 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 right. But the issue to me is that jump shot. And I don't know. I was anticipating we talk about this with, with decline because the struggle I have with Westbrook is whether the loss of elevation and sort of the flatness of that shot is just has it permanently broken and you know the, the free throw indicators don't help although a lot of people suggest that could be purely psychological it concerns me beyond just psychological um, sort of OCD tendencies and so is it that or is it that he came off a knee like he had a knee surgery and maybe he could get back if he's not carrying the entire offense on his back I, I don't know my guess would be that it is above I'll go above 55 percent yeah that that's I think that's I don't know. fair well here, <laughs> no, I'm here's changing another, my mind here's here's another consideration Westbrook over the last couple of years has taken about about 23 percent of his shots from three feet out to or from three feet to 16 feet and then another 14 percent in the long two range I'm guessing both of those numbers drop Right. And remember, this is as a proportion of his shots. I'm guessing both of those drop meaningfully as a rocket. And he has been, since his MVP year, he's been pretty rough on those shots. You know, like that's been one of the big changes for him is, you know, not shoot. He, the, his MVP year, Russell Westbrook shot 43% on mid on the long twos. 
And then, or sorry, no, he shot 43% on mid-rangers, like the normal mid-rangers, and then 34%. And it's, you know, there's been a drop-off and all these sorts of things. So I could see some gains there as well. Also, maybe you change the proportion of his shots with that at the rim. I don't think you're necessarily going to get in the rarefied air in terms of free throw attempt rate because that was just bonkers. That was a huge part of why he was so good. Yeah, it, he's an interesting case. And so, but also it's worth noting, and this is why, you know, talking about him as a regression candidate, is just because his true shooting percentage is higher doesn't mean he is a more valuable player exactly. or any of these sorts of things. Right. It's just, it's it, basically this gets into the idea that I've been trying to, I've been trying to square the circle with Russell Westbrook since the trade happened. I was sitting in, in Aspen, Colorado when I heard about the trade and was like, Oh, okay, like, and had these two thoughts. One, I think this is not a disaster, but pretty bad for the Rockets in the playoffs, but better than some people think in the regular season because those issues just don't rear their heads very often. And I think that's kind of where I've ended up with it is he'll be more efficient. Obviously, he'll have a lower usage rate and all those sorts of things. And his defensive foibles will matter less to me, I believe, in the Rocket system than they would in some other ones. And also, they've been underappreciated because the Rock, the, the Thunder have been so good defensively, not because of him. And... So I think that they'll get a lot of that stuff, but then it's still going to rear its head in the playoffs if they if they end up going to the you know the deeper rounds, then his weaknesses will be exploited, and it's going to be hard to prevent him from those the the devil on one of his shoulders at that point. All right, we can come back to Russell on the other side of the aging curve. In- interestingly, you mentioned Jimmy Butler right before that, and that made me think of Justice Winslow, who is a guy I li- I like. I like a lot of the overall sort of brown beltness of Justice Winslow. Winslow, like defense, some defensive chops. He can pass a little bit. He's got a decent first step. He's got a little bit of an in between thing. Uh, he he doesn't finish at the rim very well. I think that's a a huge weakness. But you know, possibly he's such a he's such a physical specimen in a way. Although he's not like LeBron size or Zion Williamson or anything, but learning to use those advantages as you continue to age. So this was a guy that was on my radar, but very much to the spirit of your boxes, almost working in the other direction. The introduction of Jimmy Butler gave me a lot of pause there. And it's like, again, you know, could justice continue to grow and get better in a meaningful way? Yeah, I think so. I could see that being the case. But playing next to Jimmy Butler gives me some concern that, in January, we'll be talking about like, wow, Justice Winslow got a lot better this year, and that's why the Heat are, you know, ten games over five hundred or whatever it may be. Yeah, I had a challenge with Winslow as well, and Miami. I think the team is much better for it that they have more ball handling this year. A lot of that is also Goran Dragic hopefully being healthier, and I still believe in Goran Dragic, but there is still a place for Winslow, and he could end up in a situation where when he's in the right spot, you know, when he's playing those minutes where he has the ball in his hands more, he looks better. And then, but it just happens a little, it's a smaller proportion of the amount of time he plays. So it's mixed signals, but there's, there's a lot to like there. And Winslow, I wonder just because it's always hard, especially with Miami about where they see their own players. If there's an opportunity for kind of like a, not even a second draft, like a two and a half draft with Winslow, if, the Butler and Dragic stuff goes well enough where they don't just don't need him as much. And then another team just recognizes, hey, forward who can do things with the ball in his hands and is versatile defensively, 
that's something that we need. Maybe not in the starting five, but can give him reliable minutes. And then that allows Miami maybe to reallocate resources. However, I don't think they have enough ball handling. They didn't really address backup point guard in the traditional sense this year. So I think they'll keep Winslow around because they don't really have that many other pathways. Yeah, and I think, I mean, if they need some ball handling, if they need some kind of secondary creation I think he's demonstrated that he can do that he might even get better at that but again to where I started is that enough to really make meaningful change that kind of pops or moves the needle it wasn't to me kind of was outside my I ended up with sort of like a like a top 10 um listed out in order from least meaningful to most meaningful based on the sort of bang for the buck if you will uh, since most of them didn't really make this list, I, I want to mention them because I think they're interesting for the conversation. A few of the kind of better than people think that wouldn't necessarily be breakouts in the sense that you and I are talking about it, but just worth talking about. Spencer Dinwiddie and Karis LeVert. I just really like both of them. I wonder how the net situation is going to shuffle itself, both with Durant out, but also Kyrie Irving being Kyrie Irving. So they'll have more playing time now, but not a ton of exactly what those guys do well. So I don't really see a breakout. But both of them have just so much talent that I wanted to make sure they got mentioned in this pod. And I, I love the Levert mention because he's a guy, again, you can see the talent so good off the dribble, uh, had had so many nice moments last year before his injury. And I see a lot of these lists that are coming out forecasting him to be a guy who's taking a leap, you know, uh, he's, he's going to be a future star and things like that. And it's not that I'm not entirely sold on him continuing to get better, of course, but to your point, I just don't necessarily, like he wasn't a guy who I stopped and thought like, oh, is he going to have a huge year next to Kyrie Irving and Spencer Dinwiddie and uh, is DeAndre Jordan, is he going to play a lot? That still confuses me. I understand he's there. But well, you you should have a pretty easy answer here when Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant were both willing to take meaningful pay cuts to fit him in. Right. And uh, yeah, that's just the as a practical matter, the difference between basketball as a human sport and basketball as a video game that you're playing is that those things matter. And if Sean Marks was willing to play ball with that, if that was a part of why KD and Kyrie went there, which as bonkers as that sounds seems like it might be a possibility. Well, then, no, I, th- I think I would pencil DeAndre Jordan in as the starter, which I don't think we should talk about him just yet, is also a reason why I'm already, like, preemptively angry and we'll need to talk about Jared, Jared Allen, Allen. A, little bit yeah. di- a little bit differently. Yeah, exactly. I had the exact same thought. And, and you know, Allen wasn't a guy who made my final cut because, uh, not just because of that circumstance, but looking, and this maybe gets back to some of your boxes and checking them, looking at where he's going to get better, it's, you know, continuous growth as a rim finisher, lob guy. He has that little, like, jump shot thing going on, and I'm just, I'm wondering between the roster they've constructed and then the DeAndre Jordan situation, even if Allen continues to grow as a defender, which is really where he's, you know, making his money from my perspective, um, it still isn't necessarily going to jump off the page this year okay shall we continue you have a, you, you have a next what's your next category what's your next group do you want to go to that well the, ne- the next guy i want to talk about is i i think will probably be a big surprise for a lot of people but there's a specific reason why and that's jermichael green jermichael green more of an established commodity you know the, the usually breakout players are in that but here's why he makes the list for me there is a distinct chance that he ends the season as the starting center on the nba champions 
and a deserving starting center on the NBA champions. And Green is the best fit to me of the Clippers bigs for more of a versatile, maybe more of a switch heavy, though you don't have to do that with Kawhi and Paul George, depending on how you want to approach it. System, and I like Zubach, and I, I want to talk about him as well. Jermichael Green fits it the best, and there is a, a, a meaningful chance, not a certainty or anything like that. The Clippers can actually trade their first-round pick. It was one of the underappreciated parts of what Lawrence Frank did this offseason is that they can still do that. But I think there's a meaningful chance that they don't need to use that first-round pick to get better at center because supply is, is high, you know, maybe they can get a buyout guy, and because if Green works well enough in crunch time situations, then they don't really need somebody that much better unless, you know, let's say somebody really good gets bought out. That is such an interesting call out. I too really liked your Michael Green. I thought that the Clippers did a really nice piece of business to keep him. And it is in play, I think, that he's, as you said, the starting center on not only the NBA champions, but the, a starting center who gets some credit as being a quality player. What's interesting about this to me and and that that's so much shade for Zaza Pachulia and JaVale McGee I'm not sure I can stand for it yeah I can but you're right uh, but but the thing that uh, kind of is making me chuckle a little bit as you were talking through it is it's it's almost cheating in a way because he's gonna he's going into his age 29 season so in theory he's like right in the middle of his prime and I'm not necessarily sure either of us think that anything meaningful is going to change in his game. It's just more that he's A, going to get recognition and B, going to be put in an advantageous situation where, you know, when you're when you're on Memphis and you got all kinds of moving parts going on there and things like that, it's very different than when you're on the Clippers and you're like the fifth guy on the court and you get all your value out of your role skills. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I think it's also a worthwhile time to talk about another, you know, guy that I'm more a supporter of than other people who is also older even older than Jermichael Green and kind of in the same category a little bit is Dwayne Dedman. Dedman, I just think he's a lot better than other people do. And Sacramento going from Collie Stein to Dedman is going to be really interesting because of how it affects things like their identity. But I just think he's so much more capable defensively. And if Luke Walton uses him properly offensively, could really help Bagley, could really help Fox. And so... 30-year-olds, even if they came into the league super old, Deadman, you know, was 24, I think, when he started in the NBA after a long path to SC and then making his way into the league. But again, in the the mentality that I've talked about before, of, or with somebody we're talking about differently than before, maybe Deadman gets there. And the other reason, the reason why I included Deadman as opposed to, to not including him in this kind of level is that I think we're also really going to notice his absence in Atlanta. And that's an unusual double for a player of his caliber to say, not only did he make his new team better, but his absence made his old team materially worse. Yeah, and he's he was another one of those guys that, uh, not necessarily to say that I, I pretty much stuck to guys who were younger, but to me, when that signing went through, he was a guy that... It's not that I think he's going to get materially better as a player. It's that, oh, he's going to be in a situation where people notice that he's pretty good now, right? Just that opportunity to A, be on a better team, and B, have a role that maybe unlocks something a little extra on that particular team so you notice them when you watch them. By the way, the Kings are like one of my favorite league pass teams, so fun to watch. Uh, and hopefully that keeps up this year. But to your point, I think when when you're one of those guys and then you suddenly show up in the playoffs or in the case of Green contending for a title, you tend to get more credit. 
Yeah, so I, I understand why they wouldn't be kind of on your list, and that's why they're really low on mine is because you know I feel I feel like they're worth discussing in this vein, but they are older. It, again, and as you said, this is a good point in there. Generally, what we're talking about with breakouts is players who are meaningfully better as basketball players, not anything else. Okay, let's continue. What, so what is, what is your next category, by the way? Well, I, I kind of, the, the, the boxes exist as ways of sorting out players, but it's, it's more in terms of just how clear the case is. I guess that's another way of putting it. And incidentally, kind of a, a, a guy who is in that next tier, this, this is probably, I'm not sure if I call it my gutsiest pick, but the player that I'm the most queasy about is Willie Cauley-Stein, the player Dwayne Dedman is replacing in Sacramento, and I just talked about how Dedman's going to make the Kings better. And the reason why is because Cauley-Stein is is close to the epitome of the opportunity change category. Because, yeah, I mean, playing with De'Aaron Fox and the, the Go-Go Kings really did help that part of Cauley-Stein's game, but the other components, I think, are going to be transformed playing with the Warriors. So, half-court offense... Now you get to play with Stephen Curry and or D'Angelo Russell for basically all of all of his minutes, whether he starts or comes off the bench. And I think Holly Stein's going to start. But the other part is defensively. He hasn't, you know, and the Kings were better defensively last year than I thought. But he, Holly Stein, if he, and remember, I I was high on him as a draft prospect because of his defense. And I think that he still has a lot of those tools, and the Warriors will put him in a better situation, even though their defensive talent is significantly worse than last year with the departure of Iguodala and Sean Livingston, Clay Thompson being out for most of the year, something you've you've talked about in, in video form recently. And I think that Cully Stein is just going to be put in a really good situation to succeed. And why he goes above the other guys is because I see an element of skill development that can come as well just by being a part of a system that uh, that has more accountability and can teach him how to be a better defender. So the sneaky thing I like there, and I'm with you on the defensive call-out, by the way, I like I liked Cauley Stein uh, going to Golden State and for the exact reason possibly being able to unlock a little more discipline. I don't think he'll be a world beater there, but certainly the opportunity to improve. But as we're talking about this, another guy we just mentioned a second ago, D'Angelo Russell, he is a phenomenal pocket passer, pick and roll passer, lob passer. And this is, you know, the area where sort of Willie Cully Stein on offense, at least last season, excelled in that dance. You open up the court even more with Steph Curry. You add that dimension. You add Draymond Green as a passer uh, as well. Great lob passer as well, moving downhill. And yeah, I mean, you might have something there. I probably, I agree with you in the sense that I even think he'll start just because I believe that's how the Golden State staff likes to do stuff. Looney has demonstrated that he can come off the bench very well. Where do you want to go next? Okay, let's go to my number 10. Let's let's start putting a little bit more uh, rubber on the road, if we will. And and again, this is sort of like I, I laid these out just based on like I'm making a bet here and how big the bet's going to pay off, essentially interacting with how likely it is to happen, like the magnitude of the growth and the likelihood of the growth. So uh, a lot of deliberation on some of the guys we've talked about, a few others as well. Um, but the the next guy I want to talk about, kind of my number 10 here, was Jonathan Isaac. Um, my guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, go ahead. Jump. You, you jump in. Isaac, 
a player who actually doesn't make my list for uh, for a couple reasons, but is a great pick because he's just such a talented defensive player, an underappreciated part of what made Orlando. I mean, Orlando was a wonderful defensive team in the second half of last year, and they were dominant at points in time. Some of that was, you know, opponent three-point shooting luck. A lot of the things that you see with a team that maybe they're very good defensively, but are they really like second or third best in the league? Yeah, probably not. But Isaac defensively what I love about him is his versatility he fits in very well as that power forward who can check a couple of boxes at the same time he can defend his own man he's a a talented help defender can you know recovery blocks all that kind of fun stuff and the magic Steve Clifford defense rebounded very well last year you know that isn't all Isaac that's a bunch of different things but he can be part of that the reason I didn't put him on is that I was always more intrigued by Isaac on the defensive end, but offensively it was always, he's going to be a low usage guy. Can he just do the low usage stuff? Fine. And I do think that that's the case, but I just don't see that much potential there. Aaron Gordon, you know, has has a lot more depth with the ball in his hands and Vooch, like, you know, Vooch is going to do it. And so basically John Isaac in their starting five, he, you know, he's going to be maybe their best or second best defensive player, but I think he's the number five option on offense, and it would be shocking to me if that changed. If it changed, then he's an easy breakout candidate, probably a, you know, a fringe all-star, honestly, at that point, if he can start, if he can really be like a, a true positive offensively, but he's still a damn good player. So I had the same sort of thought process that you had. I was a little bit surprised to, I didn't just didn't realize last year how big some of his offensive indicators had jumped from year one to year two. Obviously, as a rookie, essentially a, a dreadful NBA-level offensive player. And he started to get things moving more in a positive direction. And I kind of I, I, I went into this thinking, well, he's just like a flat baseline negative on offense. And the defense gives him potential, even if he's not explicitly recognized as a breakout kind of most improved player candidate we're talking about a guy just on defense alone who I think has the potential to be a top 10 defender in the NBA like a difference maker type defender his length and you said it on ball off ball protecting rim uh, different guys that he can match up with in terms of skill set I thought um, there were certain moments in the playoff series against Toronto last year he had like this amazing half of defense against Kawhi Leonard and some of the other Raptors. So that alone kind of had him on my radar there. And then enough to get him into this spot for me and make make my final list was, okay, he's an 82% free throw shooter. He seems to be able to attack closeouts much better than he did in the past. He's got the He's got like a little thing going on with his mid-range. And the shot, when I look at his shot mechanics, there's something wonky at the base, but the kind of the feel and the top Make me optimistic that this is a guy who, if you ramp up that defense, and he's like a 35% three-point shooter now, a 36% three-point shooter now, now you're talking about a really, really effective starting player who can make a difference. And I'm actually more optimistic about tweaking some, you know, like awkward lower body mechanics than, you know, your shot just comes off funny and your arms are going in eight different directions and you're stuck. So that's, that's kind of how I ended up with Isaac making the cut. That's a totally worthwhile point and, and a good way of, of framing it. Something else to mention is that in a just world, which we are not in in this context, he would also be a really dangerous small ball five. And Orlando reaps some of those benefits just because Vooch has a far more versatile game than the average center, including 
he can space the floor. He's not like, I, I, I don't think of him as just like a knockdown three-point shooter in the way that some of those centers are, but he can have the ball. He can occupy his man a little bit further away. But in certain circumstances, depending on your defensive scheme, Isaac as a small ball five would be absolutely devastating. And so probably not going to see that much this year, but it, it's something that he potentially has in his back pocket. Great, great call on the small ball five. Who's, uh, who's next on your list? This one sort of came out of nowhere for me but it makes sense the more I thought about it. And it was, I was piecing together Utah's rotation and there's been a lot of talk about how they have depth and, you know, they have a lot of functional pieces and, you know, getting Ed Davis for such a cheap price and all, and, you know, having the, the ball handling that they have at the forward spots. And I started getting this question about, well, who are their backup wings? And realized that there was a guy who was sitting there who I also think has a lot of room to grow. And that's Royce O'Neal. Oh boy! I I I just like it. I like his game. I think that defensively he can fit in. He checks a couple of different boxes for them. So he's more in the opportunity box for me rather than the passage of time because he's also older, like some of the other guys on my list. I think that I just, part of the reason I do that. I talked about how passage of time guys just aren't as sexy for me to pick because it's just hey they're just getting older. But I, I just I, I it's just that's an instinct play for me too. Like I think he's going to be in a better situation. And again. You know, you get this ramping up when you're on a good team, when you're on a team with real stakes. And he's not going to start. He shouldn't start for them. But I think he can play an important part. Now that Jay Crowder's gone, all these good defenders are gone from this team now. So he's going to be, what, 20, 26? I'm, I'm curious. Do you think that this will be a combination of minutes and sort of steadying defensive impact and a little offensive growth? Like, talk, talk a little bit more about where you see... Uh, when you started talking about Utah, I instantly thought you were going to Royce O'Neal, but it's 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 outside the box for me. So talk a little bit more about where you see it coming from. O'Neal is a complimentary offensive player. You don't want the ball in his hands too often. And a key element to look at for offensive growth of those types of players is better lead players and mm. going from the... You know, the, 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 the Jazz offense was, I think, more successful than some people give it credit for because you remember how badly it ended with the Rockets the last two years. But, you know, they, they've been good enough offensively. But now getting Mike Conley, I think, will allow Royce to get a lot better shots. Same thing's going to be true for Rudy Gobert, who is not going to be on my list, partially because he's really damn good. And I think so offensively, there will be gains now. You know, only, he had a 58% true shooting last year, shot 39% from three. Those parts aren't necessarily going to grow, but he had an 11 usage last year. I, I think he has more to his game than that. And just sometimes what happens, you, I, this is just off the cuff. It's something I would love to research or have somebody else research. But it feels to me like limited role players, when they have better, better especially distributors, you can see a little bump in usage where you don't get the d detraction in true shooting because they're getting better shots and they're not having to take as many bad ones. And so I think that O'Neal can benefit from that. And then playing time is a huge thing. He played 1,600 minutes last year, which is a whopping 20 per game. I could see that getting a little higher this year just because of opportunity and because they're, they're not super deep at that spot and they have a lot of guys that can shift around. So I like O'Neal there. And I just I just think there's there's room for growth. He he can just not have to create as much of his offense. He can defend the three pretty well. So, yeah, I, I, I toyed with not putting him on the list at all, and then I just went, screw it, I like him. I think he's going to have the opportunity. He makes my list. So you're saying you like the Jazz again this year? 
Well, and he's not, <laughs> he's not the only jazz man on my list. Uh, yes, I have another uh, jazz man on my list as well. Um, Danny, this is why you're here. Royce O'Neal. Who would have thought we'd be talking about Royce O'Neal? Um, my number nine guy, my next guy, is I think is going to surprise people that he's this low. Uh, because of how much I am a fan of him. I'm actually decked out in his uniform and shorts and everything right now, and I have a hat with his picture on it. Um, that's Jaron Jackson. I, as much as I love Jaron Jackson, I'm not convinced that we're going to get year one to year two huge growth, but I do think we're going to keep getting growth. And so I don't know. Oh, jump in. You want to say something? No, that's basically my exact thought process as well. I'm a huge Jaron Jackson believer. I thought that the the Grizzlies. No, I'm not gonna say they were lucky that he fell there because that was it was a challenging set of picks. If Luka had fallen, that would have been wonderful for them. But he's a complimentary offensive player, and while I love John Morant, his film, it's a rookie point guard. <laughs> you know, a rookie point guard who's coming from Murray State. I could see the offensive part being a little bit more limited, and also remember. The guy that they paid a lot of money to this offseason by choice was Valanchunas. And Jackson, eerily reminiscent of his time at Michigan State, I think his best role is as a center, really offensively and defensively. He's good enough paralleling a few other guys that he can work both spots, which might actually be to his detriment because that makes it easier for coaches to shift him from his best role. Because they can get away with it, and there's so many damn centers in the league that if you can play a guy at the four, you might as well. And I, I think that as well. And, I mean, this ties in with why I was a little bit queasy about putting Royce O'Neal in and a couple of their guys. Is that? And I should mention, Jaron Jackson was actually next on my list, so we can. it's good that we could just talk about him now. And, yeah, I, I could see him being a lot better. And, and the other reason that I didn't have Jaron higher on my list is because... I think he was better last year than some people gave him credit for. So it's not as much of a breakout because he was right. already good. Right. Yep. Exactly. I think I think he's already good. And uh, of course, I've done a a, a video detailing um, all of his strengths and sort of forecasting and things like that. So I'll I'll leave Jaron at this to say this. I think a lot of his development is going to come with physical maturity, getting stronger, getting sturdier filling out, understanding how to use his body and control it. And I think as that happens, whether there's a single year where he jumps or pops, I don't know. But I'm just not comfortable enough saying from year one to year two, given the other things you laid out about the Grizzlies, given the environment he's going to be in, um, given, I think, where he needs to grow as a player, uh, A, I think he's already good, and B, I just don't know if there's enough there to... The potential's there, right? That's why he's on my list. But... I don't know if there's enough to really say. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Jaron Jackson coming in this year, and we're talking like get ready for the All Star team. It's not quite there for me yet. The next guy on my list, I think, is there's a parallel in that. I think people will have think that I have him too low, but there's a very specific reason for it, and that's Donovan Mitchell, my other jazz man. And oh man, Mitchell is in. He's an easy breakout candidate because he's going to be in a better situation. I mean, in terms of not having as much on his plate. And a stat that I really like on that, this is using synergy. Last year, there were 177 possessions where Donovan Mitchell took a catch-and-shoot jump shot. And 465 where he took a jump shot off the dribble. And while Mitchell actually, as a percentile measure, was better on off-the-dribble shots relative to his peers than he was as a catch-and-shoot guy because of the way basketball works— shifting those to catch and shoots still would help him because catch and shoot shots are easier. And, and also 
he could get the benefit. I've always thought of this, which is weird, and it ties in with how when I got into the game, that I always think of this as the Brandon Roy problem, which is that players who have the ball in their hands a lot end up taking a proportion of shots that are just bad shots, not because they're bad shot takers, but because somebody has to. And I think that having Connolly on the team will A, lead to fewer of those shots existing because they'll just get better shots through in the clock and take them, and another guy who can take those shots. So Mitchell will get efficiency gains there. The reason I'm not as effusive about it is he had a 31-6 usage last year. He had a 21 assist rate last year. I, I, you know, you could see some of those things toned down a little bit. Bringing Connolly in is going to hurt that. I think they will be a better team for it, but that could tone it down a little bit for him. So this kind of ties in with some of the Russell Westbrook stuff we talked about of is a more efficient, less used player that much more valuable? Well, I think they can be. It's it's interesting. Mitchell um, was not next on my list, but seventh. So we're, we're, I think everything you said, we're in alignment here. I think it's likely that we get improvement I think it's less likely that we get a huge jump and we're talking about a clear-cut force that is a driving all-star and a big-time scorer who you know gives Utah that extra gear. I think that's the less likely scenario, and so I kind of split the difference and end up with Mitchell here where I think there'll be some improvement. To your point, I think there are ways where he can improve his efficiency, not just from the presence of Mike Conley, but other roster changes on that team. And... I think I, I do anticipate that. But again, look at how he plays. You you dialed up the catch and stu- shoot stat. I also, one of the things when I broke down his film and, and ended up making a video on him last year, looked at was he's he's skilled and crafty finishing, but he has to do so much to get in there and create. He still relies on that little floater that I I, I don't think it's as easy as people think. You can't just age Donovan Mitchell into Dwayne Wade and think that you're going to get a guy who automatically has like massive ways to generate easy offense. I think his passing and playmaking and comfort in these situations continues to grow. And that's why he's on this list for me. But yeah, I think it's, I think it's less likely that he makes a huge leap. Another huge factor along what you're talking about with Mitchell to consider is the structural changes to Utah's lineup because Yes, Connolly's an easy one to go to. Of he's, Mitchell can I have the ball less and do that. But the other one is sw- basically swapping out Derek Favors for Boyan Bogdanovich. And they're going to have a lot more spacing. They're going to have more real estate to work with. And that could make life easier on Mitchell as well. Maybe you shift the proportion of shots that he takes in different parts of the floor. So, for example, last year, and these numbers aren't horrendous by any stretch of the imagination, but last year Mitchell took about 20% of his shots from 10 feet out to the three-point line. So those are two-point jump shots. And then he took another 24% of his shots in floater range. You could see both of those numbers, maybe not necessarily, I I think the floater number will drop. But if, if if the floaters shift to shots at the rim or just to something other than floaters, that could be a huge efficiency boost for him, just like it is for basically every NBA player. It feels weird to couch all these things and sort of, uh, almost almost view it from like a negative perspective when we're both saying like this is a guy who we think is is one of the top growth candidates in the league like I just I, I was thinking this you know this popped into my head as you were citing some of those stats it's like I think we both see continued growth here the only question is is it more likely for him to really pop and and be a slam dunk all-star or just continue to 
improve around some of these areas, the spacing will help, et cetera, et cetera. And to me, it's the latter. Yeah, I, I think that's really fair. And But the potential's still there. I mean he could the, the potential's still there. And with Mitchell, the he, he's one of the players, and I don't have as many of these this year, who has the potential of the margin gain that really matters. You know, if he becomes a star, right. then that's so much more important than Royce O'Neal being a twenty five minute a game guy. Right. On the same team. You know, like that the what you can get from Donovan Mitchell is, is so much more important, and there are a lot of teams that have kind of made this mistake. This is a criticism that I, I had of the Atlanta Hawks when they did the DeAndre Hunter trade, is that they he's I like DeAndre Hunter, but he's a low ceiling guy. And getting an All Star, getting an All NBA player that helps make every, that helps make guys like DeAndre Hunter more valuable, and so that's why their development is more important. All right, with my so I had Mitchell seventh, so my number eight guy. I'm gonna I'm gonna turn left here. This I'm interested to see if this really throws a curveball in your direction. And actually, actually, before any curveballs are thrown, let's pause the conversation there. I think this is a great time to split the conversation into two. As you can tell from the title, this is part one of two, and we have a good ooh another hour. I would say of content to get to around these guys. So we'll leave it right there. We'll come back. In part two, in a couple days, same bat time, same bat channel with Danny LaRue to see the Kool-Aid I'm drinking. And spoiler, I, Danny and I are both drinking a little Kool-Aid on some of these guys that are a little bit more outside the box. Those those players were particularly interesting. So that'll be in part two. Hope you've enjoyed part one. This was a lot of fun to do and continue to put together here. And man, it's just been so long since the last podcast. As always... Thanks so much for uh, the support from Patreons, patreon.com slash thinking basketball, unveiling uh, some new things over the summer. So one thing is if you are a Patreon insider, you will now get access to uh, YouTube videos that are available early. So for instance, the stat series is going on right now. When those are publicly released, like the last one was on Wednesday, you'll get those when they become available on Sunday or Monday. There's going to be part four of the stat series, which will be released on Saturday to Patreon insiders. That's coming a couple days later for the public as that wraps up. Uh, Again, as always, thanks for your support. Hope you've enjoyed this. And as always, I hope you are having a great day.